Are you looking to take your knowledge of faith to the next level? Oh, yeah! You've come to the right place. Welcome to Post-Christian Pastors, broadcasting from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The podcast hosted by four pastors as they discuss relationships, faith, pop culture, current issues, and much, much more. Hey, yo, welcome to Post-Christian Pastors. We're glad you've joined us for another exciting episode. It's going to be a good one. We're broadcasting live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm Mark Helsel, along with my compadres, my teammates, my, I don't know what they are. <laughs> they're just, they're here again. Uh, John Price is back with us. Yes, the nice he guy. Was suspended. He was suspended <laughs> for uh, Inflategate. He was inflating his numbers at church. <laughs> so we suspended. Him. He's off suspension. Off back, suspension. Back. Yep. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Back well, in the house. Back in the house. Yeah. And also along with Marv Nelson. Marv Nelson. And finally, Mike Arnold. Mike Arnold. Well, the team is back together. We're glad that you have joined us. This podcast is uh, our attempt as four pastors to just live in a post-Christian world and what we believe is a deeply post-Christian society, the United States of America, and just simply how do we figure out how to follow Jesus in the midst of that? So if you've tuned in for that, you've tuned in for the right thing. If you haven't, you probably should stop listening to this podcast right now. (laughs) No, keep listening. (laughs) You might be challenged anyways. (laughs) Yes, if you tuned in to hear Joel Osteen, you have tuned in to the wrong podcast, but we are darn it, but we are glad that you are here and with us and while we've got a crazy one today um, yeah. it's going to be fun and and I say crazy because it's it's a topic that is in in the culture right now and uh, is uh, current and a lot of opinions and a lot yeah. of opinions yeah it's probably our most difficult podcast to date very yeah. much I did sleep well last night and yeah. it's been a challenging one yeah. we're sure. not playing Ted bad questions today no because um, <laughs> they would be bad <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. ten horrible are, questions horrible questions <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, we're excited about, we are excited about this podcast. Uh, we have some great guests on today. Um, our first guest today is Ryan Phipps. And Ryan just wrote an article that just hit the Huffington Post about this whole bathroom controversy. You guys have, have heard of this whole whole bathroom controversy and like target came out and said like anybody can go in anybody's bathroom and yep. transgender are, issues, transgender with issues yes. with bathrooms. So people are up in arms. And, uh, I think he wrote a great response as a possible way through this. He's a pastor in New York. And so he's going to be coming on yep. his article went to the Huffington post. I mean, he's Christianity right, today. I think it's going all around. Yeah. Right now yeah, he's right now he's getting a lot of, up. a lot of reads on this and along with him, Marv is who's going to be joining. Yeah. Him? Owen Meehan, a uh, student of mine back in the day in Nyack, New York, who is uh, transgender, was uh, a female, now is uh, saying male, and that's how he identifies himself now. Uh, And so it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. Let me just say, you know, as we come at this tough topic, we are all just as confused as, as anyone else, and we're really just trying to make a lot of sense of it. We're so confused that we're in an empty building, and all four of us would 
going into the male restroom where there's only one urinal and there's another girl's we bathroom next time. to us. We waited, and we, we waited, waited in, in line. line. So, so we are... Uh, We're pretty slotted <laughs> yeah. in our, our thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but no, I think what you said is great because we're going to come at this podcast, if you're listening right now, there, it's not that we came here to give all the answers. Oh. We are here to listen and to try to understand and also to, to, to walk alongside people as Jesus would walk alongside them. And so that's our goal for today is not just to give you a ton of answers, but we want you to hear the stories. Yeah. And we want you to hear people and maybe come a little closer through yeah. your ears, you know, today as you listen to this podcast, you come a little closer to people that you might not normally rub shoulders with or talk to. Yeah, so. and I think giving voice to to people in the situation that we're going to highlight transgender is important because many of us may not interact or know that we're interacting with transgender people. So I think it's an imperative conversation to kind of get out there and to open up the conversation rather than shrink it down, uh, kind of expand it and say, Here, here's the stories. Let's take a listen and really take time to to love on this group of people by giving them voice. Yeah, and there's definitely tension in that, Marv, because I don't agree with a number of their opinions morally or theologically as well. Same. Uh, and I don't right. know that yep. we are going to agree and get to an agreement here. And so um, I'm, I'm open, though, to listening and dialoguing and starting the conversation. Right. And you don't have issue. to agree with someone to love them. Correct. And I think that, that that's that's something maybe our culture has messed up. I think, you know, I'm not going to agree with everything either. And they're not going to agree with everything that I'm going to say. But I think it's an important conversation to say it's OK to, to disagree, but yet still find a way to love one another through the the process, not using uh, judgment or hate, but saying, okay, we might not agree, but we can still walk alongside one another. And our final guest is uh, Paula Williams. Yep. And uh, Paula Williams used to be Paul Williams, who is actually very well known in the evangelical community, uh, church planter, uh, uh, CEO of the Orchard CEO Group. CEO of the Orchard Group. I mean, like, preaching at mega churches yep. and all kinds, I mean, writer for the Christian uh, standard. So very well known in the evangelical Correct. community, but, but uh, a few years back transitioned into being Paula Williams and she will be coming on to tell her story. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah. And for those people out there who might be like, I'm not ready for this conversation. Uh, the guys around the table know the last night in our, we were t- uh, texting back and forth, messaging each other. And I'm like, guys, I'm not sure we're ready for this. Like, I'm not sure we're ready for this. And I kept saying, I'm not sure we're ready for this. Yeah. I'm still not sure we're ready for this. But <laughs> at the same time, I th- just want to be an encouragement to those of you out there who are listening to say, I'm not ready for this. Well, I don't think any of us are quite ready for this. Yep. And but yet, it's a necessary but conversation. But it's a necessary conversation. Well, the conversation's here. Right. And the reality is either you choose to ignore the conversation or you step into it. Right. And today we're choosing to step into the conversation, even though we may not be perfectly comfortable or ready right. for it. Yep. So here we go. So come back here on Post-Christian Pastors. All right. Back at it. Glad you're with us for a what could turn out to be a very, very interesting conversation. And before we dive into that, we wanted to kind of set some um, ground, kind of groundwork, set some terms for all of us, because we realize that you listening to this podcast and myself included do not know a whole lot about uh, transgender terms and even issues and things like that. And so we wanted to kind of set some groundwork for for it. And we're going to use uh, an article by Mark Yarhouse, who is a professional uh, 
psychologist at Regent University, where he directs the Institute for the Study of Sexual Identity. Okay. So he has written extensively on this. Yep. This, And uh, I want to just kind of use some of his stuff that he said in an article that he wrote for Christianity Today, just to kind of give us all a framework to kind of put this all in uh, to help us. So let's first, let's define our terms. Gender identity, as you hear that term, is simply how people experience themselves as male or female. Uh, How they feel, how masculine they feel, or how feminine they feel. Now, the term gender diasphoria refers to deep and abiding discomfort over the incongruence between one's biological sex and one's physiological and emotional experience of their gender. So you guys, you guys all get sure. that. You, yep. you get that. So those are different terms. So uh, gender diaspora is that actual incongruence that, that people feel. Now, the, the previous version of the American Psychiatric Association's diagnostic manual included the diagnosis gender identity disorder, and that highlighted cross-gender identity as the point of concern. The newest version refers instead to gender diasphoria, moving the discussion away from identity and toward the experience of distress that you feel over that. So a lack of congruence between one's biological sex and gender identity exists on a continuum. So when diagnosing gender diasphoria, mental health professionals look at the amount of distress as well as the amount of impairment at work or in social settings that people feel. So you all get that. So people have different various levels of gender diasphoria. It might be very slight or it might might be... incredibly uh, overwhelming feelings and highly impactful in their social life. Yes. in their social life. Now the American psychiatric association estimates that the number of transsexual adults is as low as 0.005 to 0.014% of men and 0.002 to 0.003% of women. But Mark does add that these numbers are probably low because these numbers only include people that visit specialty clinics. So it, right. it could be slightly right. higher. It would be higher, but again, a very small percentage of people. Now, transgender is an umbrella term for the many ways people experience a mismatch between their gender identity and their biological sex. So not everyone who's transgender experienced significant gender diasporia. This means that transgender transgender people are much more common than those formally diagnosed with gender diaspora, but not nearly as common as those who identify as gay or lesbian, which is 2 to 4% of the U.S. population. Now, while on the topic of homosexual, let me clarify that gender diaspora and transgender issues are not about having sex or attraction to the same sex. They are about an experiential mismatch between one's psychology and one's biology. Right. So I think people often think, like, this is a sexual issue Correct. first, and transgender people would say, you know, it's a, it's a biology issue first and a gender issue for an internal, and I think an internal issue. And I think first. that's hindered because we always say LBGTQ, you know, we were adding it all into that one lump. Sure. And so right. I think right now we need to take the T out of that and say, let, we're just dealing with that separate right. from the other issue. Right. And psychologists and researchers do not know what causes gender diasphoria. The most popular theory, though, among those who publish on this topic is the brain sex theory. And it proposes that the brain maps towards male or female, which in nearly all cases corresponds with the biological indicators of sex, your chromosomes, your gonads, and sexual hormones 
and your sexual parts. Okay, so almost always those things line up together, but the belief is by most psychologists is that in a small cases, it does not. To wrap this up, what happens to children when their gender identity conflicts uh, continue with their gender identity conflict continues into adulthood? Uh, Psychiatrist Richard Carroll proposes that they face four different outcomes. It's really three when you read these. One is live in accordance with one's biological sex. So some people choose, even though they have some gender diasporia, to stay in the sex and gender role they were raised, born, raised in. Two, engaged in cross-gender behavior intermittently. So they have some cross-gender behaviors in their life, but but mostly they stay within their sex or gender. Or three, adopt a cross-gender role through sex reassignment surgery. So I I hope that helps us get some kind of framework because obviously, uh, honestly, when I read this, it helped me kind of get some kind of context to put this in because again, in my personal life, I don't interact with people or haven't that I knew were transgender on a very regular basis. Right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Very real issue. It's all over culture right now. Yeah. And I think that that's a helpful introduction to the issue as we're going to go and talk about it. All right, so we'll be right back with our guests here on Post-Christian Pastors. Welcome back here on Post-Christian Pastors, and we're really excited for our first guest today. Uh, His name is Ryan Phipps, and Ryan is the lead pastor of Forefront Church in Manhattan, New York City. Uh, Forefront is an interdenominational, multi-site congregation dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith in New York. And around the world. Yeah. And we also, Ryan also spent some time here in Pittsburgh. So welcome, Ryan. How are you this morning? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for being here. And uh, we, we're so excited to have you uh, here in the conversation. How you ended up here, you wrote a blog post. And uh, tell us about that and then what became of that blog post and, and why you're here today on Post Christian Pastors talking about this. Yeah, our uh, our church forefront is um, part of a uh, newly forming group, uh, national group of progressive evangelicals called the Open Network, um, and uh, I blog for them regularly. And uh, just had been reading so much about this um, issue of the way bathrooms are being handled for people who identified um, differently and uh, really was heartbroken by how everyone was missing the point. So um, I thought the solution was very simple and everyone was just missing it. So um, I wrote it (laughs) very quickly and, uh, and uh, yeah, I guess it struck a nerve with some folks and was picked up uh, by some smaller news outlets. And then HuffPost finally picked it up and, so the the article yeah. got picked up by Huffington Post, and I'm guessing yeah. people are blowing up your blog, right? Well, our our site metrics um, can't read anything above plus nine hundred and ninety nine percent. So they've read that ever since the day I posted it. So yeah, needless to say, um, it's been at least nine hundred ninety nine percent every day. Nice. Mm. So so just so just for those of 
uh, people who are listening to the podcast right now who, yep. who have not read the article, uh, give us a little bit of synopsis of the content of the article and, and what's the heart of it. Well, um, two things. It's a it's an architectural scenario for bathrooms that would suit the needs of everyone while um, for those who are on one side of the issue that are afraid of uh, their privacy being violated or disturbed, um, this would quell those fears. Um, it would also elevate um, those who don't have a place to use the restroom, particularly those of the transgender community who seem to get uh, stuck in the middle with the way that people label them. Um, it would also allow them a place to use the bathroom where they're not um, shunned or persecuted for needing to uh, use basic human services that should be afforded right. to all people. And there's some theology at the end, um, which is my own addition, why I land on that. But um, it's largely not a theological issue in many ways. And But in my case, as a pastor, I see it through that lens. Right. That's a great question. This is Mike. Uh, let me ask you a question, kind of cut maybe a little bit deeper into this issue. Yep. What do you see as the real issue here? Tell me if this is too lengthy. <laughs> I think uh, I think we in the United States uh, get so polarized by the blending of politics and religion. Um, there's no doubt that politics and religion don't share some tethers. Um, for instance, uh, I'd say almost everything I believe politically is in some way, shape or form connected to my faith. Um, the thing about our laws, though, that emanate from the Constitution say that we are not to um, enforce laws that are uh, based on specific religious values. People should have the freedom to practice. So if you have uh, one person that has religious views that say, well, transgender people should be able to use bathrooms, we should have bathrooms for everybody, and then someone that doesn't, what you're ultimately doing is getting deadlocked in this religious conversation when really laws are there to serve all human beings. They shouldn't be picking out one person from another. So if laws don't serve all people, we're actually not um, obeying the laws that emanate from the Constitution. Right. I, uh, this yeah. is Marv. I just want to jump in on that because, I, yep. you know, one of the things I often say is that, that we should not legislate morality. And I think, yes. that, I think that we too often do that. And that's where the blending comes in. It's, it's, it's our moral code saying, okay, now we need to enforce our moral, moral code on the, on the laws of the land because this is my, yes. this is my religious expression coming out. And so then we legislate our own morality. Yep. Um, but but I think what your point is, too, is that that doesn't actually draw anyone closer to Christ. It actually pushes them further from from Christ because we're saying you now have to do what I'm telling you to do because I'm making it a law politically. My religion is now enforcing a political agenda. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I would also add that, um, you know, the point of laws, the point of government, secular government, is not to draw people to Jesus Christ. Right. Um, it's mm -hmm. to govern people. Well, that's the church's equally. job. Right. Justice should be blind. And if I have a blindfold on, I can't tell if you're transgender and you should be able to use the bathroom. Ryan, this is John Price. Um, going to, back to your kind of original uh, blog post and yep. your design of, of uh, this, you know, kind of, here's a, here's a practical design to use. Yep. Um, what would you say to th those people who would say, 
hey, why don't we just offer a single bathroom that's available yeah. for people to use? Why do we have to retrofit everything? Why do we need to create this? Change them all. Change, right? Right? Yeah, change everything. Like a family bathroom. Or right, something. exactly. Why do we Why do we need to do this? I mean, you know, for, for some... For well, some, the family bathroom was a change. Because when we grew up, there was no family bathroom. Right, sure. Yeah. So that was a that was change a, that they made for society. Right. And added, like, a family bathroom. Right. right. So yeah. go ahead, keep going with your so, question. So I was just, you know, kind of, you know, why, why would... Um, why would something like that not be a an adequate uh, expression or an adequate um, opportunity to allow people to use uh, use the restroom in a comfortable way? I think the reason actually for for the design I proposed actually had less to do um, with uh, people who identify as transgender or anywhere in the LGBTQ spectrum and more to do with um, what I was hearing uh, about the fears of women um, being in restrooms. And so the design is such that everything that needs to happen in the restroom can happen in a private closed environment. Um, so for instance, in New York, we have tons of unisex uh, bathroom stalls, but in those stalls, there's no sink, there's no mirror. Uh, what you do after leaving the unisex stall is you go out to a communal space where there are sinks and mirrors. Um, women don't want to stand in a communal space with men and put on makeup and et cetera. Uh, so really my, my, uh, the architectural scenario was just to post a thing that would, uh, a scenario that would work for every single human being, no matter how they identify on the gender spectrum. Ryan, can I ask you, you know, my thought is that this is a really good overall solution, yep. but, but as it comes to the trans... You're going to ask me how to pay for it, aren't no, you? No, no, <laughs> We don't no, even care about that. No, no honestly, <laughs> honestly. That's above our pay grade. Exactly. I, I don't well, think... Turnpike tolls. Turnpike tolls. Right. So, I mean, I think it's a good overall solution, but I, I don't think it's going to be meeting what the trans community is looking for. Because in these laws, here's what I believe. I believe that yep. there is a deep-rooted statement that they are deeply wanting to be accepted for who they are. This, bastro- yep. this bathroom idea that you've designed, I think, hits the nail on the head for everyone but them. I feel it okay. still might be an accommodation. Uh, like this, oh, I see. You know, like we're just we're going to accommodate this. We're not going to let you be who you are with the people that you say you are a part of. Uh, and, and so it's a separatist accommodation to that. And I just want to see what you, you feel about that. Because I, I really believe that their heart behind it is some of it can be driven you know, by selfishness or narcissism. But I think the sure. deeper portion is saying, I, I need to be accepted by society for who I am. And so I don't, yeah. I don't know that this would meet that need. I have many close friends in the LGBTQ community who, um, support this idea. Uh, again, I think that goes back to laws. I suppose there would be a third option where there is a bathroom for, Um, those who identify as transgender only, for me, that comes down to a major inconvenience in spacing, um, in having to alter, uh, really like drastically alter the, the building code, et cetera. Um, and so in, in terms of law, uh, if something like this were to become law, again, I would go back to say that the law is, um, there to treat everyone equally, to elevate everyone to an equal status. 
um, we should not be making a distinction between gay people and straight people. We should be thinking, what laws can we make that help all people that are human? All right, we're going to take a break here for uh, a short moment, and then we're going to be back uh, with Ryan Phipps. And also, we're going to add another guest to our conversation. So stick around. We'll be right back here on Post-Christian Pastors. Welcome back to Post-Christian Pastors. I want to introduce our next guest. Uh, his name is Owen Meehan, and he lives in Brooklyn. Hi, Owen, by the way. Hey, hello. Thanks for joining us here on Post-Christian Pastors. We're glad you're here, all the way from Brooklyn. Yeah, everybody's, everybody's from Brooklyn. I know. Today's a New York day. <laughs> New York. No sleep till so Brooklyn. I, sleep I know, till Brooklyn. I know Owen uh, because he was in my youth ministry um, back in the day in Nyack, New York. Uh, and and back then, uh, Owen, you you were, were Lydia, and now you are Owen. Um, and and you felt the 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 move to, to be Owen rather than Lydia. And so... We, my question is just kind of explaining that if you could for us as well as you know you and I had a discussion about you um, claiming Christianity and now something has changed and we'd love to kind of just hear that that shift in your life and then we'll jump into this conversation with Ryan about his article on bathrooms yeah um, so you know it was a, a really long process for me to uh, I guess figure out my gender stuff is the easiest way to put it. Um, it really just, you know, I was not comfortable in uh, my body. I wasn't comfortable with uh, the ways in which I was interacting with the world and the world was interacting with me. And so it was really a very long, uh, painful vetting process of figuring out what exactly uh, was making me uncomfortable, why it was making me uncomfortable, how I could address that. Um, and in that process, you know, I grew up uh, interacting with a lot of very, very conservative uh, Christian institutions. Um, a church I went to before I knew uh, Marv was very much a church where like just being gay, just being queer in any way uh, is enough to land someone in hell. And so, you know, it, as I started realizing that I'm just not a straight person, I'm just not cisgender, um, it frankly led to a lot of depression, a lot of self-esteem issues um, because of all of this super conservative rhetoric that I was exposed to growing up. Um, so part of my own process was figuring out um, who I am kind of uh, involves realizing that the church as I, as I knew it, uh, was not a, a safe place for me. Can I, uh, can I ask you really quickly, like, when did you start to feel this way? How, how old were you when you started to, um, feel these, uh, have these feelings about your gender and this struggle with your gender? Like, how old yeah. were you when that happened and kind of what, what was, what was that like at the beginning? So I am a very aesthetically focused person. Um, I like things that are well designed, things that look nice, and I feel like there's no reason for anything to not look nice. So from a very, very young age, I have this distinct memory uh, from when I cannot have been older than seven. 
I was out with my mom and we were looking for something for me to wear for some special occasion. Um, and so we were looking at dresses and I was having the struggle of like, I really like how these look, like this dress looks really nice, but I don't want to wear it. Um, I want to see someone else wear this dress. So I had those kinds of things coming up from a very, very young age. Um, and then, I mean, by middle school, I was getting really uncomfortable in locker rooms. Um, and so, you know, I had a little bit more of a delay than some people do in putting words on it. Um, I think because of the conservative environment I grew up in. Right. Um, but I mean, by the time I left high school, I was uh, very, very certain that I am not straight. And I was pretty certain that uh, there is something about my about my gender going on. Uh, and by the time I was 18 or 19, I, I had really figured that stuff out for the most part. Okay. And can, can you go back to the second part of Marv's question, which was, uh, so tell us a little bit about the faith journey too. So you, you used to identify as a Christian, you used to call yourself a Christian. Now you do not. Can I tell us a little bit about that journey and how you, you came to that place at this point in your life? Yeah, so as I had briefly mentioned, um, I grew up interacting with a lot of extremely conservative uh, Christian schools, uh, churches, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the the way that things were explained to me is uh, gay people go to hell. That's just what happens. Wow. Um, and that was something that... Uh, just had a drastic impact on my mental health from a very young age. Yeah. Uh, because when you grow up and that's the only way the world has been explained to you, uh, yeah. it's kind of a lot to realize that you fall into that category, you know? Um, In the so going that, to hell category. Yeah. So that's a yeah. rough news to yeah. be given to anyone. Yeah. 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 So that was uh, very rough to put it lightly. But then you also have institutions like Westboro Baptist Church uh, that were very, very vocal while I was in high school. Um, and I mean, the the college that my dad worked at while I was in high school was um, less than friendly to queer people, shall we say. Uh, there was a lot of tension there. Um, one of the things that happened when I first came out to my parents is queer um, is that they expressed concern that if the wrong people at the college found out that uh, my dad would be fired and we would lose our housing. Um, so I had a pretty drastic interaction uh, with conservative Christianity that um, really, I think, greatly pushed uh, me away from Christianity as a queer person. Um, I know a lot of people who have come from similar backgrounds who have retained their faith. Okay. Um, and that's honestly something that I admire. Um, it's just kind of not how things worked out in my case, I guess. Oh, and I, this is Mike. I got a quick question for you. I just want to jump in and, yeah. and push on this issue with bath, bathrooms. Uh, we have Ryan on the line as well. And Ryan, yeah. you uh, you wrote an article around the issues of bathrooms. Owen and, and Ryan, I'd love to hear you guys dialogue a little bit around this topic. What, what were your thoughts when you read Ryan's article? I really liked it. Uh, these bathroom issues generally are something that I uh, deal with on a daily basis. Um, and coming from the 
Christian background that I come from, I always wonder how someone can have these discussions with people who are uh, coming from just a Christian background, generally speaking, but especially a conservative Christian background. Um, so reading the article was really exciting for me in the sense that um, it was cool to see how the idea of gender neutral bathrooms can be grounded in scripture. Um, and just kind of knowing that that is an argument that can be made uh, was really encouraging uh, because I think it's essential in our conversations about uh, bathrooms and gender and where things are going to be able to have those discussions in a religious context. Ryan, anything you want to add to that? No, I just, <laughs> I would like to, uh, Owen, I'd like to commend you on your journey and the courage it's taken. Um, you know, a, a close mentor of mine that I think you guys might be interviewing after this yes. um, went through this transition later in life and, and highlighted some of the same uh, struggles and persecutions and just uh, dark nights of the soul that you went through. And I, I just want to commend you for going through that earlier in life. I want to explore something real quickly here and just jump in a little bit deeper on the issue of sexuality and identity. When you kind of talked about your journey a little bit, you really talked about really finding your identity uh, in sexuality and in the sexual switch, gender switch. Tell me a little bit about that as well, because it's a little foreign to some people who are maybe heterosexual that have not had that experience. Or my, my sexuality is a part of who I am, but I don't consider that uh, who I am. I don't consider myself a heterosexual monogamous male. It's part of who I am, but I don't see it as an identity issue. Can you share a little bit about your journey in that area? Yeah, so I think one thing that really um, differentiates how uh, queer and trans people think about uh, their identities from how straight and cisgender people think about their identities is um, the struggle that uh, one of those one of those sides goes through you know it's something where at this point in uh our culture i had to struggle so much both internally and externally to come to terms with uh my gender and my sexuality that um that's become that struggle has become such a huge part of my lived experience um, and the way people think about these issues still impacts my life in such a big way on a daily basis that to not have it be part of my identity, I think would be doing uh, all of the work and struggle that I've had to deal with. I think it would be doing all of that a disservice. Um, one thing that I don't think we talk about enough uh, when we talk about what trans people deal with is all of the logistics that we have to go through. Mm. We have yeah. to legally change our name. We have to learn how to break down gender uh, for anyone who's confused about what trans means. We need to figure out how to explain yeah. it. Uh, we have to figure out how to navigate really difficult conversations. If we decide to medically transition, we have to navigate healthcare in a huge way. Generally, that involves uh, massive fights with health insurance companies to get coverage mm -hmm. uh, for the procedures we need. Um, you know, we have to figure out what bathroom we're using. We have to think about how other people are reading us. Uh, safety yeah. is a huge issue. 
uh, for trans people, especially trans women and especially trans women of color, even more so. Um, if we are not read as cisgender, uh, then we have to be extremely aware of our surroundings, of who's in a space, uh, of how we can potentially get out of a situation should violence occur. Hey, uh um, Oh yeah, <clears throat> I just want to go back to one thing that you had said. Uh, you know, like talking about this this depth of identity. I don't mean to interrupt that process of where you're yeah. going, and, and we'll give you an opportunity to share more. You know, one of the things that, as I read the article um, about the bathrooms, because there's such an identity that that gets wrapped up into it. You know, I I said to Ryan, I said I think this is a good solution for everyone but trans people because it still seems like an accommodation where we're just saying, okay, we're going to accommodate this way. Uh, but I know that there's this deep, yeah. there's this deep root uh, for trans, trans and queer folks to, to to say this is who I am. Can can you just accept me for who I am in this process? And so you know, for you, you want to use the men's restroom and and have have society say you're a man. And, and I think that developing these kinds of bathrooms may may hinder that and be simply an accommodation. That that was my my statement. And I just wanted to see kind of yeah. you know you and Ryan dialogue about about that because it is such a huge identity portion as you mentioned as, as what as what Mike was saying. Well, and I also want to piggyback on that Marv too if I can. Do you guys see this? I see a potential tension point that we're actually creating in our culture. I mean think about putting uh, maybe someone who comes like a, just a redneck guy that does not understand this topic at all or will not address it. You're now sharing a bathroom with that individual. We're, we're actually creating a, a strong tension point in community. Correct? So that tension point already exists, for one thing, because I still have to go to a bathroom whether it's gender neutral or not, right? Yeah. Uh, especially living in New York City, you know, tourism is such a huge thing here, um, and people move to New York City from pretty literally everywhere. Um, so I already will walk into a bathroom and get looks from someone, regardless of what bathroom I go into at this point. Um, I, I feel like, uh, if I walk into a woman's room, uh, that feels like an invasion. If I walk into a men's room, that feels like a mistake at this point. So there's really no way that I feel comfortable going into a gendered bathroom. Uh, because regardless of which one I choose right now, um, it gets reactions that are negative and potentially unsafe. So, I so in... In that sense, I'm, I personally am a huge fan of gender-neutral bathrooms. However, uh, Marv, you are right. There are a lot of trans people, especially trans women, who really, really struggle with the idea of gender-neutral bathrooms because uh, they just want to be seen as men, as women, and they don't want to... Um, they don't want people to put them into this third or fourth gender category, if that makes sense. What would yeah. both of you guys say this? I, you know, I posted, Ryan, your article on my Facebook page, and the first response I got was from someone that said, this is going to be a terrible inconvenience for me. I don't want to go to baseball games and wait in longer lines. Have you ever looked at how long <laughs> yeah. the, the girls' bathroom line is? That's what my bathroom's going to look like now, and I don't want that. So how would you two respond to that? Well, I would say, I mean, if you, it sounds like the person didn't read the the uh, section about making space in the article closely enough. If you think about what you're talking about architecturally, 
um, if you eliminate all the space of a currently gender separate space, you would double the space of the restrooms. And so at best, the line would be halved. And it, it, it goes back to laws. This doesn't have anything to do with spirituality or faith at this point. The law is there to serve all people. It's not there to divide them and separate. Um, laws should be there uh, not to constrict people when it comes to bathrooms, but to serve them. Now, here's the crazy thing about America. It's what's good about us and what makes it very difficult. You mentioned a, a redneck guy not wanting to share the bathroom uh, with someone who identifies different on the LGBTQ spectrum. Well, the fact of the matter is, uh, as an American, that person needs to give a little bit. They need to uh, loosen up a little bit because these are the laws that are in place. And those same laws that afford them to use that gender neutral bathroom are there not to constrict them, but to ensure that all people are treated equally. Society is an organism with many parts and no one gets everything they want. We get what's right for all people when we work together and we're willing to major on the major well, points. Uh, you, you can sit there and say for them, well, they just have to suck it up and they're going to have to, to be strong. I mean, this happened with, with, with uh, black and white bathrooms. I mean, there were people, yes. black people that got killed, lynched in bathrooms when things changed because there wasn't an acceptance of it. I mean, so, so I mean, you know, Owen and, and you know, is it would it be safe for that to transpire? I mean, in New York, it is a little bit different. I mean, you know, I remember living there. There's, there's a lot more of a liberal ideology. But if you transform that into, you know, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, maybe, uh, and people are wigging out about about Target, and, and my fear is that there could be some danger in if we don't slowly pu push through this in a different way. You know what's difficult, and this is just fact as you look at the way society progresses down throughout history, um, you know, you think about the movie Selma when they're marching across the bridge and Dr. King is, is doing something that's deeply rooted in his faith and also deeply rooted in his belief in the dignity and the worth of all people. Um, people were beaten and killed on that bridge. Right. And that is terrible. But tell me of one great change in society that has ever taken place where um, there hasn't been um, strife like that involved. I'm not advocating that. I'm saying it's a byproduct right. of chain. For both Ryan and Owen, one of the applications for this uh, in my kids' junior high school is my and they yep. and uh, one of the struggles with her public junior high school is that they're not going to allow a teacher to monitor the bathroom from the inside because of child predator laws. And so, do you guys see a potential problem by putting junior high boys and girls in the same bathroom together unmonitored by an adult? I think you're talking about a Listen, it, bathrooms are the way they are in public schools right now, and um, the current bathroom model does, does not suit that. That's no. why I think it's an architectural problem. No one is going to see anyone naked right. uh, yeah. if they <laughs> change the architecture. The architecture is not set up to handle the current need of people, and that, that's my premise for the whole need to change it. Um, you know, we uh, didn't have, uh, I'll give you an example. We don't have an elevator uh, at the subway stop right outside our church. So um, folks who are in wheelchairs or, or families with large strollers can't get up the stairs. Um, architecture has to be modified to yeah. suit the needs of society. And so, again, I 
I think what you're saying is that it's a time sensitive issue. Right. Uh, the conversation that Owen was referencing is we're not having the right conversation about sexuality. This is an organic process. It's not something that happens overnight. And it yeah. starts with the individual um, engaging in courageous conversation with people that haven't seen something that way before and not being dogmatic about it, but thinking in terms like, have you ever considered this? Have you ever considered this? Most people just haven't been exposed to a different idea. Right. Uh, we're busy. We work. We just want to get through the day and we don't have time for extra ideas. Right. Uh, and that's why conversation is so important, especially, especially at the mentorship, uh, the parenting level, and the friendship level. Hey, Ryan, uh, and Owen, this is John. Um, one thing you just said, Ryan, that I think would be uh, helpful is this idea that this process is going to be organic, yeah. right? You said, yeah. but, the pro but I think part of the problem is that we see is that um, there's this great push for it not to be organic, right? It's, there's this great push for it to go from one, from one way that we've experienced to like to now changing completely. And sure. I think that that's probably what's actually driving more of the fear and the misunderstanding is this idea of we're going to go from here to here without the opportunity for that organic process to take place. This pushback is happening because of a conversation that we're yeah. trying to start. And so, you know, any kind of limitation, any... Um, lack of organicness that's happening, I refuse to take any responsibility for that, you know, because from where I'm sitting, we just tried to say, hey, look, 22 trans people got killed last year, 11 have been killed this year so far. In 2011, 45% of hate-inspired murders were tr trans women who were killed. And I can guarantee you, trans women do not make up 45% of all people who are part of a minority you know what i mean like so we're trying to bring up that we're facing incredible violence and that maybe we should change some of the ways our society is structured so that we don't face as much violence and the response is we are now going to legislate more violence against you um because you tried to start this conversation let me ask um let me ask ryan uh, on your idea that you you know you put out in the article well, what's yep. been the what's been the pushback you've gotten? Oh, just the the standard rhetoric of uh, I I don't want my kids in with such and such. I don't want to be in the bathroom with such and such. Again, it's a I, my my uh, guess would be that it's a quick reading of the article. If you look at the plans, no one's privacy is disturbed or violated. Yeah. Um, everyone can have their own space. It's actually increased. Uh, everyone, by, everyone's privacy is increased by your yeah. by your models. Actually, yes, more private exactly. than a well, standard male. One of the things today. that one of the things I enjoyed about it because I have a I have a little daughter and um, you know and every time I had to take her into the men's bathroom if I was oh, if I had I her by myself yeah. it was always not not a fun time. Like, honey, like turn your head, you yeah. know, like walking past the urinals. <laughs> Let me say something though, just to cut through some fog here for a second let me get really pragmatic and basic um my friend paula and my new friend owen <laughs> they want to use the bathroom right they exactly. have to use the bathroom people need to use the bathroom right. it's that simple so they shouldn't have let's feel have bathrooms unsafe or weird use. i mean that would be Great. you shouldn't have to walk around from venue to venue from store to store and then 
get arrested for urinating on the street. I mean, the, it's we're just talking about bathrooms. Right, this find week. a way. Find a way. Yeah. You know, find and a way. What ends up happening is trans people wait to go to the bathroom and wait to go to the bathroom and wait to go to the bathroom until they can find a single person gender neutral bathroom yeah. in a Starbucks or something. And mm-hmm. it's physically yeah. unhealthy. And that's not fair. Um, no, it's not. It's also incredibly uncomfortable. Like enforcing bathroom laws that require that I go into a bathroom based on my birth certificate um, magnifies that further and it makes it very directly apply to a basic need that I am going to interact with on a daily basis. I cannot avoid that um, and is a constant reminder of the ways in which so many people view us. Uh, so many people view us as pedophiles, especially trans women. That's just factually incorrect, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's just there's, a stark there's, reminder. There, from what I read, Owen, there as as it comes to predatory um, trans women, it, there's been zero cases that have really yep. come forward. Is yeah. that is there that correct? Are, yeah, there are zero verifiable cases of a trans person attacking a cisgender person in bathrooms. Zero. Hey, Owen. Um, yeah. Let me uh, ask you a question, maybe just one in closing here, because we've been on for a little while. You're on the, mm-hmm. you're, on, you're with uh, five pastors right now. Yeah. How can we minister better to the transgender, transsexual community? Mm. So I... I was actually thinking about this last night because I had a feeling it might come up. Um, And I I have a few things, and I think some of them, um, some of them I think might be more comfortable than others. Uh, The first first thing is treat trans people how they want to be treated. Uh, You know, listen to our stories, listen to our needs, um, talk to us, hear us out. Um, do not make assumptions about where we are coming from. We have, you know, our backgrounds are just as varied as everyone else's. Our interests are just as varied as everyone else's. Um, and see us in that multi-dimensional way. Understand that while we have these trans identities, it's not all that there is to us. Um, another thing that I think is really important, uh, I would say with ministering to the queer community in general, is um, whatever your personal beliefs are about what is and isn't a sin. Um, You know, honestly, I don't really care that much about that at this point. What I care about is being treated with dignity. If I were to return to the Christian church, um, I would kind of take it... uh, You know, I would basically... I would not... uh, I'm trying to figure out how to put this. I guess I would lose respect for a pastor, minister, leader in the church who could not uh, put their faith in a queer or trans person's own journey um, and their own faith and could not put their faith that God will reach those people as needed when needed. Um, Conversion therapy, I think, is a huge issue to this day. Um, And, you know, from a faith viewpoint, one of the criticisms that I would have against that is, you know, God is going to reach people when and how uh, he needs to, right? And people are on their journeys, and it's not anyone's job to fix someone else's journey, to change their journey. 
you know, we're here to support each other and yeah, maybe guide each other. So asking tough questions is essential, but telling people that their journey is wrong is just kind of unacceptable to me. So I, I feel like that can be a very hard line to walk because I would never want to ask someone to throw their, uh, their faith out the window, but I feel like that's something that uh, some pastors can frequently do with queer and trans people. Yeah. Oh, and I, I hope you, uh, I hope you know that there's, there, like, there are five pastors on with you right now, and I hope you know that when we listen to you and we listen to your story, you know, our hope and and we have to we have to struggle to not do this too is, not to <laughs> not to um, not to confuse the church and some of the things the church has done throughout the years which all of us on the on the line right now we all you know we feel incredibly bad about some of the things that the church has done throughout history and even today even to this date that we don't agree with but we also know that we have to separate that from who jesus christ is and so i really hope that you know that Jesus Christ loves you and that Jesus Christ is walking with you in your journey and that he is seeking you out and that he has your best interest in mind, even when Christians have failed you or churches mm-hmm. have failed you, because everybody around this circle right here and, and, and Ryan can tell you the church has failed us too yep. massively at times. And so I hope that where you're at on your journey, that you just know that simple fact that you are loved by God and God loves you in the midst of where you are right now and not some future version of you or some past version of you, but the, but right now who you are right now. Yeah. And as your former pastor, Owen, I, uh, you know, I care for you deeply and hopefully I wasn't one of those crazy conservatives that you bumped into. <laughs> No, you you were not. Uh, you you really weren't. You were. Uh, He's just crazy. I mean, other than that, we're, we're okay with that. Well, hey guys, yeah. thanks thanks for being with us today. We really yeah, appreciate you, you being so here, much. and uh, and uh, thank you for your insight, and and also to know that there's a lot of people that might listen to this podcast, and I would be one of them who has not had a lot of interaction with transgender people, and so I really appreciate um, you being open and honest and helping me um, also develop, you know, my my thinking and to help me uh, be a better minister and friend and just person to to people that are transgender and 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 seeking clarity on this issue. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank, for you, so you, guys. Much. thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank, thank hey, you. Mark. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Ellen, go ahead. No, I was just saying thank you. That's all. Uh, Mark, if you would give me uh, 15 more seconds, if I could just read this real quick, I think it will really sew this together. It's 1 Peter 3.15. It says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, Amen. If you're having to give an answer, it's because someone's asking a question, not because you're holding up a sign. Yep. Um, and secondly, if the answer that you give is not an answer of hope and it's not done with gentleness and respect, it is a direct violation of the spirit that inspired the scriptures. Amen. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys, thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll be back here on Post-Christian Pastors. The snow is falling down, I pull you near 
Well, welcome back here on Post-Christian Pastors. Thanks for being with us in this very uh, interesting discussion that we have today uh, in our subject matter today is uh, it's just uh, it's something that people are talking about in our culture right now. Sure. And, and uh, it's it's exciting to talk to the people that we've talked to today and, and eye opening for many people, I think, yeah. listening to this podcast. Too. A tough conversation, but a real one, I think. Yeah, it's I mean, yeah, it's, a very it's real a very conversation. Uh, Ryan's still with us. Ryan, you're still there hanging on, right? I am here. All right, Ryan is here. And uh, Ryan, we miss you in Pittsburgh. You got to come back sometime. Uh, <laughs> wow. Dude, wow. wow. Not today, Ray. <laughs> wow. Today. So Ryan's with us, but we're all, we're also, Ryan's reluctantly uh, not, not coming back to Pittsburgh. But Ryan go. said, see you later. See you later. Do you still like the Steelers, though? Do you still follow the Steelers? Who are they? No. Oh, man. Wow. I just man. lost a bunch of listeners. <laughs> I lost them already, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so joining us, but we're adding another guest to, uh, to the podcast today. Uh, joining us is Paula Stone-Williams, and let me tell you a little bit about uh, her. For 35 years, she worked uh, with the Orchard Group. It's a church planning ministry in uh, New York. Everybody's from New York this time. Um, for most of it, uh, she was the chairman and C- CEO. And for 12 years, served as a weekly columnist and editor-at-large for the Christian Standard, uh, teaching pastor for two mega churches. And as she says it, all those things ended when she transitioned in her life about four, began that transition about four years ago into being Paula and all of those kind of things ended. Uh, She currently, though, serves as a pastoral counselor, uh, church and nonprofit consultant, writer, speaker, uh, all kinds of things like that, and and, and also still works with church planners and things like that. So we wanted to uh, welcome you, Paula. Welcome to Post-Christian Pastors. We're glad you're with us. I'm glad to be here. So uh, uh, just uh, the first question we want to ask is like how... Tell us about your relationship with Ryan and and how uh, that how that relationship has looked over the years and how that relationship began and and actually what your relationship to each other is. Sure. I worked with the Orchard Group for 35 years. For most of that time, I was uh, chairman and CEO. When I started, we had a budget of about $167,000. When I left, we had a budget of four million. When I started, we had a staff of three. And when I left, we had. Oh, at any given time, between 30 and 50 or 60 people on staff. And Ryan was on the staff of a church we planted in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So that's when I first came in contact with him. And then um, actually after I transitioned, well, before I transitioned, I probably, I was really well known in the evangelical world. I've preached in three of the 12 largest churches in the country Um, and uh, probably knew by name, I don't know, five to 10,000 people. After I transitioned, uh, 50 of those people have contacted me, 15 have met me, uh, five more than once, wow. and Ryan would be one of those five. Wow. So he's one of the very, very few mm. that crossed over with me. Paula, tell me how that felt. Um, well, it was fascinating because I did not lose one single non-Christian friend. I did not lose one single counseling client, hmm. but I lost virtually everybody from my evangelical past. Um, that is just kind of what, whatever you make of it. It's, a strong you know, it's just the reality. 
Why do you think so? Why do you think the evangelicals uh, did not reach out to you? I think there are several reasons. I think in some cases, I was very much a father figure. Like uh, there's one person who stuck with me who's a CEO of a food production company. And he said afterwards, you really... Um, messed with me and I said well get in line and he said, um, he said you were my only example of an alpha male who was gentle mm. and I thought oh I think you got me there because I was definitely an alpha male and I was definitely gentle and he said so what am I supposed to do with that now so to a lot of guys um, I was a father figure I mentored a lot of large church senior pastors and so for them you know we are gendered beings and we live in a binary society so i think for those folks it was uh, it was really hard in the same way it was hard for my family for the rest i think that so much in the evangelical world is driven by fear and it was just too weird for them and they just didn't like it and i mean it is weird you have to accept that it's weird I mean, there's, you know, we're 0.3% of the population, so you don't see a lot of us. There's definitely a minority and, status there. Yeah. That, well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. You know, so. so let me ask you a question, Ryan. Um, wh what made you cut through the weirdness and keep this relationship with Paula? Well, um, a number of things. I mean, just the history of... I, I was at a point um, where I was... Um, moving out of uh, the denomination that I went to school inside of and um, moving over to work with the Christian churches and the Churches of Christ with Orchard Group. And um, that's when I first met Paula. And um, I remember hearing Paula um, just at the beginning once a year, um, Paula, who went by the name Paul then, would speak on... Um, topics that just deeply resonated with me. Um, there was a very gentle, open, um, conversational, um, context, uh, handling these heavy topics. And so I remember, um, I wasn't fully sold on, um, staying in ministry at that point, but I decided to go to, uh, one of these retreats and, um, Paula had spoken on, uh, the topic of homosexuality in the church. And, um, it was probably the one thing that kept my foot in the door of ministry. And so I think saying, I think friend is not lofty enough of a term. I would say that, um, I'm grateful to Paula for, I, I don't know that I would still be in ministry if it weren't for her. Paula, this is John. I was wondering, I'm going back to, uh, the idea of, you know, uh, kind of losing uh, most of your uh, evangelical uh, friends. My question would be is, I'm guessing part of that is because transgender doesn't fit nice and neat into kind of uh, biblical sexual ethic that is kind of a traditional understanding. Um, my question to you would be, how can Orthodox Christianity understand transgender within the context of a bi biblical sexual ethic? Um, or maybe, can it? Um, I think probably well, there's several questions yeah. in that Sorry. and several things to respond to. Well, one is, um, you know, I probably would want to ask you exactly what is a biblical sexual ethic. Um, we're in the middle of a series on sex at Highlands Church where I attend and where I preach. And 
Um, that's you know that itself is a difficult question. Um, but I'll move past that um, to to the the question of uh, gender as it relates to uh, scripture and sexuality as it relates to scripture. First of all, gender identity and sexual identity are two separate things. Mm -hmm. uh, so to have a gender identity issue does not mean um, that you necessarily have a sexual identity issue or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sexual identity is who you want to have sex with. Gender identity is who you are. And in, in that sense, scripture just doesn't really have anything to say on the subject. Probably the only passages that people refer to are either uh, in Matthew, where Jesus talks about uh, eunuchs, and of course the understanding of eunuch in that age would potentially have included lots of different uh, places on the gender spectrum that are outside of the gender binary. And then if you take a look at the other, which is Genesis 1, that male and female God created them. Well, if we're to take that as uh, some uh, dualistic binary application, then what do you do with the 42 different types of intersex conditions that exist within humans? So obviously that's not exactly well, can, what God was can, saying. Can I just jump in at that? Uh, some people, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and I think I might even fall into this this category as well. Some people say, well, the different things that happened in creation were due to the fall, whether it's the human side that was that was affected because of the fall, everything changed. Uh, and, and I think that that's because we were made with this connection to God, to others and to creation. So how, how do you uh, respond to that question? So you're, you know, you're saying, well, the, the 42 different changes, uh, saying that Genesis was may not be addressing everything it should. How do you respond to that, that the fall affected all of creation and certain things that were not God's intention for creation then ended up happening? Um, two things to that. First is um, I'm fairly confident my theology on the fall would not be the same as your theology on the fall. <laughs> but I don't think there's any particular reason to want to go into that. No. Um, if, we, if we take that as a given, um, then still I don't think it changes the fact that we're living then in, in what you would consider to be a fallen world. And we have responsibilities um, within that world. So... Um, just because the world is broken, does that not mean that we would not attempt to fix it when we can? That's a great, that's a great question, Paula. And uh, I want to address this issue of creation because I think it's one of the theological kind of underpinnings that kind of rubs with me. And I, I don't have fully have an answer for it yet theologically, but if God is the ultimate creator and he creates us man and woman, is there a line that we're crossing over by readjusting or um, are we saying God made a mistake uh, in the transsexual? community and are we crossing a line by recreating gender if any of us were choosing our gender um, then that might in fact be correct the assumption is that those of us who are trans are choosing to be trans which would be an inaccurate assumption so did God make a mistake by creating you uh, um, your previous gender making did God make a mistake oh well we're not, I'm not even sure I'm going to accept that one um, did God create me as a male when from my earliest memories I knew I was in the wrong body? So did God do that? Yeah, that, that's the question. If he created you as a male physically, but internally you, you have a sense that you are a woman. As a physically, okay, so what do we mean by physically creating me as a male? Because we know that transgender um, females, which would be me, that 
uh, if you were to do an MRI study of our functioning brains, and it was before transition, before any surgeries, before any medications, you would discover that our brains function more female than male. So is gender found in the anatomy of our reproductive organs or in our brain? It would be found in our entire body. Okay. Like we know, for instance, that women who had DES, were, took DES, which was given commonly between 1930 and 1970. Can you explain what that is? I don't yeah. know what that is. What's a DES is a drug that was given between 1930 and 1970 routinely okay. to try to stop uh, miscarriages for women who are prone okay. to miscarriages. Thanks. We know that males born to women who had taken DES have a 30 times greater chance of being transgender. Not a 30% greater chance, a 30 times greater chance of being transgender. That's Significant. We know that the body is created in the first three months prenatally, but the brain's connection to the body does not happen until the, the third trimester. So the, the best understanding at this point is somewhere between the first trimester and the third trimester, some type of short takes place, if you will, within the brain that causes the brain to not make a connection to parts of its own body. There are actually a number of medical conditions that have the same problem. There's one in which people find a limb of their body to be a foreign organ. Right. And it's a huge problem because their brain is constantly telling them that that limb does not exist. In some um, European nations, they actually will remove that healthy limb because it actually solves the problem that the brain is experiencing. I actually just watched a Grey's Anatomy <clears throat> about that very thing. Greg Scholastic, right? I mean, research just saying, it. just saying. No, but it actually wasn't. It was it was Chicago Med. I apologize, it was Chicago Med, which is a little Much bit better, better than Grey's Anatomy. And, and there was a guy was that came worried. in. Anyway. I know, right? Well, it's my wife, right? We we watch it together. I, I'm I'm a kind of your wife. Um, so, anyways, we were watching. We were watching this. Uh, Chicago Med together, and that 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 significantly that happened, and they tried to help him uh, psychologically, but he ended up tricking them and cutting off his own arm, anyways. Because it was, it was such a significant right. piece that he's saying, "This is not my body." Right. So, and the brain eventually says, thank you very much. The brain has no phantom limb, as the rest of us would have, because for some reason, when the, that portion of the brain developed, it did not develop a connection to that particular limb. It generally happens with one of the four limbs. The assumption is the same thing is happening with trans issues, so that those of us who are trans, post-transition, it is almost 100% of the time that we are extremely comfortable in the new body. There is still significant suicidal ideation post-transition, but that's not related to how you feel in your new body. It's related to how the world is responding to you. Can you verify that with facts on on that process? Yeah, what just, around yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, because because you said that I had known, I have known rather, sorry, that the suicidal rates post transition didn't necessarily change. I, have they done enough study to to to, I guess, use as a proof text to say it's not because of the transition, but because of of the world, the way the world's treating them? And and let me just couch that and say I know from uh, from friends and students that I've had before that the world does in fact treat uh, terribly transgender people and so mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not trying to negate that I'm just trying to simply ask is there a proof text 
Well, let's be really careful with exactly how we use that language. We know that pre-transition, there's a 41% suicide attempt rate for people who are trans, a 33% suicide completion rate, which is six times higher than any other diagnosis. That is, that's high. Now, post-transition, what happens is within the first 18 months, there's a 35% suicidal ideation rate. Suicidal ideation is quite different than suicide attempt. Yes, it is. So that's the first thing to, to recognize that's different. But when we take a look at the suicidal ideation rate, if in fact you were a uh, successful, well-educated white male, you did not lose your family, you did not lose your friends, and you transition, your suicidal ideation as percentage actually drops lower than the population at large. If on the other hand, you are an African-American and you are younger and you do not pass in your new gender, um, your chances of suicide are in fact closer, suicide attempts are closer to that 35% rate. Yes, there has been a study done of 1,259 people post-transition uh, that was just released last year that was done in 2003, so it was 12 years before they released it, uh, that indicates there are four major reasons that we see suicidal ideation or we don't see it post-transition. One is ego strength. Does a person have pride in who they are? Second is, are they rejected or accepted by the culture of which they are a part? This is why it's so important in both ethnicities and in people groups and in religious groups. We know that um, that African-Americans and Hispanics will have a higher suicidal ideation because those are two cultures that don't accept. We know evangelicals will. 83% of Jews accept trans people. 62% of mainline Protestants do. 52% of American Catholics do, though it's not a democracy, but only 27% of evangelicals accept them. Right. So that's the second biggest right. indication. Do you lose family? Do you lose friends? Do you lose job? The third is, do you pass in your new gender for those of us who, those of us who do pass? I mean, I'm through, through um, Charlotte virtually every week. I used to be through Pittsburgh every week until Allegheny County decided to charge U.S. Airways too much for their airport. Yes. <laughs> yeah. happy with that. You definitely know that one. So, yeah, I used to spend half my life at the Pittsburgh airport. I loved that. But, um, you know, I'm through North Carolina every week. I have no problem using a bathroom because even though I'm tall, most people uh, have no idea that I used to be a male. So passing is a big piece of it. But the biggest piece is um, what we would call um, have you have you internalized uh, transphobia? So uh, the internalization of transphobia, and that is purely cultural. If you're a part of a culture that says you are wrong, where you have deep shame, you know, guilt is feeling badly about something you've done. Shame is when you are what's wrong. Mm. Um, the internalization of transphobia is the biggest indication of suicidal ideation. Paula, when I, um, when I you know, was reading your bio and, and just thinking about where you had come, come through, what you had come through, and and kind of the uh, transition in your life. It's 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 rather striking. I mean, it, it's not what I would have expected, and um and I'm I'm a person, and we talked about this earlier that most of the people sitting around this table, all of us sitting around this table here, have not had very much interaction with um, transgender people, and so. In a lot of ways, we feel like we're we're operating out of a, a lack of knowledge or a, a lack of experience. experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, 
you know, when we talk, when we talk about these issues, I, you know, first of all, we hope that we're being as respectful and, and loving as possible because that's our, that's our intent. Um, I think the, I think what, you know, just personally for me, when I, what I struggle with, so I look at your story and I go, okay, you, uh, you, you, you had, a, you raised a family, right? You have a family, you have a, a wife, you had a wife, uh, and it's still, and I don't under, you know, I guess it's hard for people to get their minds around that whole thing, children and, and that whole family dynamic. And it's a lot to give up. It's and, a yeah, lot to giving change. all that yeah. up or what I'm not sure saying giving it some, all up. Some people do though. Right I mean, that was, right. that was Paula's point and that's right. a harder transition. But, but I guess going through that whole changing the, that whole dynamic, <laughs> did you really struggle with doing that? The, you know, this is a covenant you made before God and with your wife and how, what was it like to, to go through that, put, put her in that situation and then also, like what I find awesome about your story, that this part of it is that you have maintained your relationship with Jesus Christ. You uh, you you still have a relationship with God. You you're a Christian. How how did you manage? Because I think a lot of people, because of the way they were treated by the church, or or as you said, you lost almost all your friends. How you went forward in that. So I guess, I hope I made sense there. I hope I, I hope I made sense there. So if you can answer some of those. Um, there are actually several questions. Yes, I, I know. That was like so, a three minute question. I'll, Mark. I'll talk first about, um, about the family. And I think, um, I think any of us who've done our work and of course, you know, being trans or not being trans has nothing to do with how individuated you are or how differentiated or whether or not you've, uh, you've dealt with what you need to deal with in your life. Right. Um, that really has nothing to do with your uh, gender identity. So you'll find, um, trans folks who are, uh, you know, very individuated and you'll find others who, uh, really are very low on the EQ scale that don't have much much relational uh, capacity or self-understanding. Um, we see a lot of those folks in the media, unfortunately, which doesn't yeah. really help those of us who are trans. But if you're somebody who's done your work, you're very aware that um, it, this is never okay for your family, not ever. I have three children and five granddaughters, mm -hmm. and we've been married for decades. And um, it's, it's not ever okay. Uh, I think most families just get to the point where they realize uh, I have two options. Either this person dies or I accept this person in a new gender. Right. Let it's me... generally easier for daughters than it is for sons for obvious reasons when it's male to female and then the opposite if it's female to male. Um, but it's not, that's not really ever okay. It's not okay before, it's not okay after. I think for all of us who are trans, even those of us who are well-adjusted, uh, that's the greatest uh, place of pain. Uh, most marriages don't survive. Right. Uh, when they do, it's either one of two things. Uh, it is either uh, where there is significant dysfunction in the marriage and one of them is, is just not capable or strong enough psychologically to depart. And so they remain even though they're not happy. And the other is people who are just willing to work through it. So my wife and I were in marriage counseling with an incredible therapist here in the Denver area where we live now. And he retired and we were actually his last uh, clients on his very last day. 
And I asked him, I said, how many couples are willing to work this hard? And he said, maybe 1%. And I said, how many couples get this far in terms of doing their work? And he said, maybe 1%, which is what makes this so hard because you're a lesbian and your wife is not. Mm -hmm. And um, so it takes an extraordinary amount of uh, willingness to do hard work uh, to remain in a relationship. Or if you're a couple who really has a lot of uh, love and respect for each other, it takes a lot of hard work to decide to end that relationship as well. But again, we come back to that basic point. You're not looking at great options here. You're generally looking at the option of a person dying because they've gotten to the point they simply can't live any longer. Or you're looking at the option of uh, dealing with them in a new gender and being in a relationship that is something other than a traditional marriage. Well, can you touch on uh, can you touch on the faith part of that, too, the kind of the journey you went through with that in the midst of it? Mm-hmm. You know, I was always a leader in the church, obviously, and always very involved and grew up as a pastor's child. And so um, for me, it was, uh, I was born into the church. I struggled a lot with um, really even belief in God over the years. I, I was uh, talking, I was speaking last Saturday at a conference that was after the Q conference that was uh, LGBT. And so I was talking to Nadia Bowles Weber um, when we were both speaking for this thing. And um, we we both said that um, for us, being in ministry was a part of um, maintaining our faith because it was, in fact, preaching uh, where we both have always felt um, the most sure of our relationship with God. And I've not heard many people say that, so it was kind of neat to find somebody else who had the same experience. That certainly was my experience as Paul. Um, I loved preaching and obviously preached in a lot of mega churches and had an opportunity to, to preach in marvelous places and was preached once a month at two different mega churches, one in the Philadelphia area and the other out here in Colorado. Um, so there was always this great sense of connectivity with God. Um, while I was preaching. A lot of the rest of the time, not so much. Um, Post-transition, I don't ever question my relationship with God. I never question God's existence. I never question being secure in God's arms. I never question feeling God's love. I actually felt strongly called to transition. Um, It it was the first and, and strongest call of my entire life. And I've only felt one other call. Of course, I'm talking about subjective call at this point. And that was post-transition when I felt called back to the church. Both times, I did not receive the call. You know, I think a lot of people think when, when God calls you, your response is, oh, joy, oh, joy. In my reality... Um, I think that the two times I have certainly firmly felt the call of God, the response was not, oh, joy. The response was, oh, shit. (laughs) For me to be called back to the church was not something that pleased me. The first uh, first time I went to the church I attend, which is six years old and runs about 800, um, I just sobbed all the way through because I knew I was called back. And within two months, I was preaching there. 
Mm. Paul, I want to jump into the idea of being called in into the transgender, transsexual, um, into your transition. It's probably the best way for me to put that. Um, I mean, I'm trying to have empathy for the position that you are in. I mean, we've been in trying to create a parallel maybe for someone like myself. I've been in jobs that don't fit. I've been in relationships that don't fit. I can't imagine... Um, the feeling of being in your body and it not fitting um, was it more of an issue of a of a lack of fit or you're you're mentioning you feel called to transition explain that a little bit well you know i i felt i mean i was trying to make it all the way through my life and a lot of that was because of the kinds of responsibilities i carried in the church um i was trying to and, and really well mostly it was because of my family i wanted to try to make it all the way through and I will tell you that I, I think I could have made it all the way through. My family will tell you otherwise. I think they are afraid that I would have taken my life. I certainly uh, dealt with severe depression mm. and more than likely would have dealt with it again. Um, but from my own perspective, it seemed uh, to me that maybe I could make it all the way through. But I was uh, actually watching one of my favorite television shows of all time, Lost, when it was the final season. And Did you um, get lost and lost? Because I kind of did. <laughs> no, yeah. I did not. No, I, mean, I, <laughs> I loved I it. I watched it all the way brilliant. to the end. I did. I watched it all the way to the end. Some of it lost me. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, uh, David Lindelof, who was one of the showrunners, yeah. really has struggled with how much people struggled with the finale. Mm. And Carlton Cuse, the other showrunner, not so much. He's He stands firmly with that. Uh, to me, it was brilliant. And in that last season, there comes a point where the protagonist feels, uh, knows he's been called by God to die. Or if you were a lost fan, it's when Jack goes to the lighthouse and realizes he's right. to be the, new, the, the next Jacob. And when I saw that, um, I just started sobbing, and I actually sobbed all the way through until the next morning. I sobbed mm, for right. about nine or ten straight hours, screamed and railed at God, sound more like a longshoreman than a pastor. I mean, I was just curious, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow me to, to, be, to be this way? And why would you call me to this? I'm going to lose everything, and I'm going to put my family through things I would never want to put them through. But I did strongly feel that I was called. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna be honest and maybe be the uh, the odd man out, but I and and this is probably just my church perspective, but but being if I, I'm struggling with the language of being called to transition, um, you know, and and, and I'm I'm not negating that you felt a compulsion to do so and, and a necessity for yourself, but but to to bring in a theological thing like the call. Uh, to transition T to me that that almost it almost sounds like I had a call to divorce my wife or I had a call to kill someone I've heard um, people say that before but right. if I could interject here then no, actually, I, I, Ryan I'm going to stop okay. I, I want to answer that That's personally great. okay um, you're going to have to show me your um, your uh, biblical ethic yeah. for separating a divorce out from being transgender. Yeah. You're going to have to show me your biblical ethic for this being a moral decision. And you're going to have to convince me scripturally that this, in fact, that your perspective is, in fact, morally correct. Your presupposition is that it's sin. Um, and if you come at it with that presupposition, 
um, you, you can't just take it and lump it in with divorce and everything else. That's how this gets really ugly really quick. Right. Yeah, you're but, right. But I, I would say, I just want to say, I don't, I wouldn't lump in a transition necessarily as sin, you know, cause there's, uh, so, so don't, don't make that assumption in that process. It's just, it just seemed like a hard, it's nothing I've ever heard before. And I'm struggling with that. And I, and I understand maybe the, the examples that I utilized probably were not, um, were not good because they were moral. There were moral issues, but it's just a wrestling. So uh, maybe I can help to add some clarity to this. So um, I think where Marv's coming from is that you know in Scripture we see that the Bible says that none of us are fully integrated selves, right? Right. None of us. I mean, we're all disintegrated uh, at different places and different levels. Um, so you know the Bible says that we're all that way. Um, you know. Does a transition necessarily need to take place for for that feeling of integration to, to take place, or like the Apostle Paul says, um, you know, my grace is, or God says to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient to you. When Paul is struggling with his thorn in the flesh, um, you know, some some have even claimed that Paul's thorn in the flesh may have been something like this type of yeah. um, issue that he was dealing with, sexual identity, sexual identity yeah. yeah, right. Um, oh, there's I, just I'm a lot of stuff. You again. This is yeah. not a sexual identity issue. This is a gender okay, identity right, yeah. issue. Uh, right. This is, in fact, a brain issue. This is a neurological issue. Yeah, and I mean, I've been reading. I used I the just, wrong word. Sorry. I, yeah. I just read the. I just read the article that I don't know if you saw that. Mark, it was about it's about a year old that Mark Yar Yarhouse did in Christianity Today, and he did address that. And so again, he's talked about different brain issue, sexual issue. Right. So if we get our terms mixed up, again, we're sorry because we're we're trying to work our way through this too. And obviously, you've thought about this a lot more than us, and 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 it's part of your life a lot more than ours. So well, I I'm just uh, I think the thing that that is so important is that you really be careful about identifying something as a moral issue right. when you do not have the grounds to do so. If there's sexual um, implications of that, you know, especially in your life, Paula, as well, I don't know, you know, where, where you practice sexually, what you practice sexually. I think that's where the conversation turns into a moral one. Do you agree or disagree? Oh, I absolutely agree that it would be a moral one on how you express your sexuality. If you want to know what I think about that, you can just go to my to the uh, highlandschurchdenver.org and listen to my sermon from April 17, uh, because that's what the entire sermon was about. Okay. Great. Let me, uh, let me ask this question. Maybe this is a wrap-up one or something like that for Ryan and for Paula here today. Uh, we're trying to engage in the conversation right now. Um, I think we would probably all say... Um, that we're somewhere on the evangelical spectrum, although our first podcast, we kind of said we're probably distancing ourselves from the evangelical right, certainly. Um, but we're trying to engage in this conversation. Uh, help us. How, how yeah, can help us. How can we, uh, as followers of Jesus, engage in this way, this conversation that provides dignity, um, that can be heard, um, but it can also listen well? You know, I believe, I do a lot of national speaking for PFLAG, parents and families of lesbians and gays, because yep. PFLAG's perspective is just let us tell our story. Let's not talk about the theology. Let's not take a look at um, moralizing or condemning. Let's just tell our stories, because if we tell our stories, we'll realize these are people. You know, one of the things I think you discover looking at anyone in the LGBT community um, is that you, you're hard-pressed to find any medical evidence 
that this is a group that is um, psychologically unhealthy. Uh, it, it's in fact, there, there simply is no evidence that this group as a group is psychologically unhealthy. Every time in the past we've come across these kinds of issues, uh, ultimately the church comes around uh, to, to understand that and to see that. The problem is lack of proximity to. So one of the things that frustrated me about the Q conference is you have Mark Yarhausen to talk about trans issues, but you have no trans person. <laughs> if you actually don't ever meet a yeah, trans sense. person, how on, on earth can you have any sense of what it is? And I go back to one thing you said earlier. You say we've never met trans people. Oh, you have. You've met them many a time. I was on an airplane just a right, couple of right. months ago and talked for the entire flight from Charlotte to Denver with Lindsey Graham, who never never knew he was not talking to a cisgendered female. Okay. So yeah. you, in fact, have talked to, to trans people a lot. You just haven't known it. Yeah, I guess I meant I have a relationship with a person who is transgender. Who you know is that trans. Know. Yeah, that I know. Right. Yeah. I think that the answer to lots of debates within the church and as a pastor i find this to be more and more true after being in full-time ministry for over 20 years um the church is addicted to sympathy um instead of striving for empathy um i think if you look at the big picture of what Jesus came to do. God incarnating himself in Christ was not sympathetic. It was empathic. Um, it's God placing himself in our shoes so that he can know what it's like to be us. And I think that with this issue particularly, and then many others in the church. I want to jump in and just say, honestly, like my question about calling was not trying to be a judgmental piece, but a question of how, how can that come about? And I was giving, giving a, an example of my pre conceived ideals. And so, sure. Yeah. Just wanted to, I'm just trying to understand. Well, I think, you know, Ryan, I think you said in our earlier conversation, you know, each, each group's got to give some, right? I mean, we got to give a little, like we, as we try to understand. Um, and I think that's what we're, we're trying. I think everybody, if there are people of grace and compassion and empathy and, um, and, and want the best for everybody, I think we've got to listen to each other. We've got to find a way to come closer to each other, to understand because often we just don't, understand each other because we're not together to really right to really talk but i do think one thing that's important to understand is i'm not questioning your identity as a white male and so it's not an equal conversation when you talk about getting a little on both sides when you're questioning my very identity yep. if i were questioning your identity who you are, then it does change that conversation. Yes, it does. Right. And I, what I meant by giving a little, I meant just giving some grace. That, that well, we, we were that, talking about that, bathrooms at that point. Oh, yeah. We were talking about bathrooms at that point. But, <laughs> but, I, but I'm saying, but giving, a, yeah, what I really meant was giving grace that we, I, I don't have the terms figured out. I don't have, I don't have all of my thinking totally figured out on this issue but to give grace to each other to to help us you know figure this out together sure maybe uh to wrap us up a little bit here paula i would love it if you would just coach me personally 
Um, I have a friend of mine that I was really close with. We served together in ministry uh, together. He uh, transitioned about two years ago, sent me a letter just explaining it. And to be honest with you, Paula, I had no category for it. We were really good friends. We spent a lot of personal time talking about life together, hanging out on his back deck. Uh, In preparation for, for this, I reached out to him and just apologized that I abandoned him uh, in this season and then told him I missed him uh, as well. He is now a female. Coach me on how I can re-enter this relationship and coach all people who are following Jesus on how we can enter in this conversation better. You know, those of us who are trans recognize how difficult it is for those from our past to continue in relationship with us. I can't say that I understand why it seems so much more difficult for Christians than it does for non-Christians, but it's pretty, it's, it's pretty unquestionable that that's true. Uh, so in my case, then it's like, well, do I want to just not have any contact with those people from my former life because I see their pain, and when I see their pain, uh, it causes internalized transphobia. You, you feel it as shame. No, it, it just hurt me. I felt like I lost. Oh, absolutely. I, felt like I, I, I lost a friend. It. But your friend experiences that as as shame. Yeah. Mm. And so that's where it really becomes so very difficult because you have one entire segment of your world that does not um, struggle with your transition. Uh, I mean, my best friend was my family doctor and I ran with him every other day for 25 years. And for him, at the end of our first evening together, he said, oh, yep, you're more you than you've ever been you. I mean, it, it just wasn't that disturbing to him. There have been very, very, very few people from my Christian world who have had that type of response. So I think any of us who are trans understand that some friends are going to struggle much more than others. And what we'll choose to do is to let that person decide, do I want to contact? Do I want to contact again? Do I want to see again? Uh, We're not going to push ourselves on those people. If we are, then that's our issue. I don't necessarily want anyone from my old life to come back into it until they want to and until they are comfortable doing it. I I think that there's... uh, I wish we'd had a way to memorialize Paul because I think a lot of people needed that. I think they needed a chance to realize the one that that Paul's gone. Those of us who are trans will always want to say, but I'm still here. But in reality, it's not the same person. It's someone different. That's really, really difficult for people to deal with. So my guess is your friend is okay um, with that and is just going to wait for you to decide when to be in touch and in what way you want to be in touch. Uh, If, in fact, you want to be in touch, and it may be a very long time, and it may be never, and that's okay. Thank you, Paul. Well, hey, Paula and Ryan, want to thank you guys for being with us today and and for uh, having this conversation, this dialogue. It's been great, and I want to thank you for for coming in and doing this. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for asking me. That's so nice of you. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, guys, um, we will will take a short break and then we'll be back here on Post-Christian Pastors to uh, wrap this up.
well, we're back. And while my brain kind of hurts, um, in a good way, agreed, because I feel like in some ways I'm stretching and uh, getting a little bit of a workout. Uh, You know, agree with some things, maybe disagree with some things, but uh, it's great to listen to those people share their stories uh, and to share their journey, uh, Mm -hmm. where they're at with this whole gender identity issue, but also where they're at with God, which is more important and uh, more important than that. So I thought what we would just do to wrap this up is just uh, go around the table and uh, just give our thoughts and where we're at after uh, that discussion. So uh, John, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, I started out by saying I wasn't sure if I was ready for this conversation and I'm still not sure if I'm ready for this conversation, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but I'm glad that we've started it. And uh, you know, I don't think this will be the end of this conversation for sure for us. Um, uh, for any of us, I think we should keep going through it. I think one of the things that I I struggled with in the conversation is that really never felt like it was answered was the whole idea of, you know, of um, God's grace being sufficient for whatever we're going through, right? Whatever you know, situation, whatever situation we're in, right? You know, um, we all have that distant disintegration in some some ways within within who we're we are. We're all broken. We are all, way. exactly. The Bible <laughs> clearly says <laughs> we are all broken. Yep. We are all messed up. Yeah. Um, and that... Especially Marv. <laughs> it's really, yeah. yeah. Especially me. Extra grace um, required. Right. Um, <laughs> Marv is an EGR person. <laughs> <laughs> extra grace required. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> John, so, yeah. So, like, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, so, I think there, that's one place that I struggle with is just, you know, I, I have so many people tell me all the time you know, this idea of, you know, um, I just couldn't continue in whatever, whatever path I was taking. And I had to, had to switch, I had to switch gears because I, I just couldn't live with myself in that type of situation. And I, and you have to say, well, is Christ not enough in that situation? Is he not enough to, to be your identity and to, mm-hmm. and to, and to be in? And the other, other thing that I, you know, kind of still struggle with is that whole idea of, you know, in terms of, you know, the brain map and the in the in the in the physical um, body, like you know, which is God's cr- intended created order, right? Yeah. Which which do we which do we default to? The right? mind or the body? The mind or the body? Right. And you know, um, we did that in the intro. You know, God when when the mind and the body don't match up, right? Which one? I think it's a great question. Which one is the yeah the created what God wanted in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of where I'm still at. I'm still, uh, but I think, you know, to continue to have the, have these discussions is, is definitely something we need to do. Marv, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, there, there are definitely things that I think that uh, I knew, I uh, did not know that now I know uh, learning a little bit more about the, the, the disorientation of the mind to the sexual uh, connection uh, and the sexual identity versus gender identity. Those are things that, that I think I, I I now have a better conceptualized ideal on and know how to handle it a little bit better in conversation with people, both transgender and non. Uh, I think, too, you throw anybody in a room, you know, throw four or five people in a room together, they're going to disagree theologically. And I think that we have to be okay with that tension. Uh, You know, so there were some there were some things that I I say, man, theologically, I just I can't land on that with you, uh, both with Paula and uh, with Ryan. And, And that's okay. 
We need right. to be able to come to a place where we can say we disagree, but we can still love each other. And that's tough. I mean, there's going to be tough moments, especially when we have a, a completely different view of Scripture and what does that mean, or a completely different uh, view of the fall, which then it transcend, it translates into the rest of our belief of the mm-hmm. Christian faith, because uh, yeah. that's the beginning of that process. And, and but but there's still that that ability to walk alongside and to listen rather than to uh, I, I need to point assert, fingers and yeah, yell and hold I need to assert and... my 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 ability. I, so I think that the, the the place that the church needs to come to, in my mind, with this topic, we're never going to have the answers, uh, but. We should be able to be okay in that tension and allow the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to love, even though we disagree, um, and not try to force our belief uh, on other people, but simply say, okay, that's that's where you're at on this issue. Mm-hmm. I do disagree, and we, we need to be able to say that. Can, can I just say, like, it, we should be safe to right. say we disagree uh, and not feel like I, I'm some now political ostracized person or some religious nut job. Bigot. Or, right, right. Yeah. <clears throat> but we need to come to that place where we can uh, love but disagree. That's great. Mike? Yeah, I feel just um, tension. I don't feel like it's wrapped up. I don't feel like I've, I've landed on an answer or, you know, maybe an application outside of love and um, grow in your empathy. I think that I've grown in empathy for Paula in particular yeah. and for yeah. her journey and for Owen as well. Um, hearing their story, uh, maybe putting myself into something like that, that kind of experience um, has helped me grow in empathy. Uh, I would say, you know, theologically, um, there's this there's a kind of like a, a leaning towards new knowledge is better than old knowledge. And right. I don't know that the brain mapping theory really should trump 2000 years of knowledge and tradition and understood truth. There's a tension there that, um, I think we need to navigate as pastors and as theologians as well, that we need to understand new knowledge incorporated into our theology, but our experience in, in new theories, biological theories should impact our theology, but shouldn't throw it out the window. So right. that, that tension there is, is definitely inside of me right now. Absolutely. Can, can I just say that word empathy, I think is key too. Yeah. It's not just feeling sympathy. Oh, I feel bad for you, but saying, okay, let me, let me walk alongside of you enough to hear your story long enough to know, not not so I can say, oh, I've experienced that. I know now. Let me but try to, to put myself yeah, in your put shoes. put yourself in the shoes. Yeah, right. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that. I think it was said in the podcast that Jesus put himself in our shoes yeah. and walked with us. And so that's a good principle for us always to try and yeah. to incarnate the gospel and, and do the same. As I come to the end of this conversation for now, uh, I would say... I don't have all the answers. Again, I would echo what you guys say and going last kind of makes it tough to come up with new things to say, but <laughs> I feel like, uh, I don't have all the answers. I- I'm going to continue to read and to study and to, Same. and to also be in, in any interactions that I can be in with yep. people who are transgender or who struggle with their gender identity. And in the midst of all of that, just tried to do simply what Jesus said to do, which is love your neighbor as yourself and find a way to do that. And most of that happens, as you said, is just to walk alongside with people and, and learn to do that. And so I guess that's where I'm at. Um, I'm, I'm a seeker and a, I'm a seeker just like everybody else. And I'm a, a traveler just like everybody else. So we hope this has been helpful for you all listening and joining us for what's been a great discussion and hopefully an eye opening one. 
And so that brings us to the end, guys. And uh, if you are uh, finding us uh, or you'd like to know where to find us, we are on uh, iTunes. You can download the podcast there or pretty much anywhere that you download podcasts. Just go to Post Christian Pastors. You can find us on Facebook. Facebook, if you listen to this, you'd like to leave a comment about this episode, go to Facebook, search for Post Christian Pastors and do that. Or you can send us an email. Don't send us hate mail at postchristianpastors at gmail.com. So those are the ways that you can reach us. I think we're also available on Twitter. And we are on Twitter, are we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are on Twitter. Somebody tweets. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, find At us. Post Christian 16. That's our. That's right. Yeah. Post Christian 16 on Twitter. So find us and, and uh, download us and tell your friends. And uh, we look forward to the dialogue on this episode. Time to say goodbye, guys. Bye. Peace out. See you later. Goodbye.